One of the things, for example, that I love about radio in Africa, particularly in some parts of Africa, is just how small and community-focused some of these stations are. There are still large commercial stations and large public-operated stations, but there are lots and lots of very small stations who are just aiming for their own particular village, their own particular community, and you can skip between one person doing some religious preaching followed by a very heavy metal music show followed by something else. (laughs) That was radio industry expert James Cridland speaking about the typically more localized nature of radio content, in this case, in Africa. Radio trends, opportunities, and the future, and how you might capitalize on those, will be our focus on the next two episodes of Looking Forward. Welcome to Looking Forward where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to focus on a communications medium that exists just about everywhere around the world, radio. In part one of this two-part series, episode number 77, we're going to delve into that evolution. We'll look at how radio has changed over the years, explore how people in different parts of the world listen to their radios, and examine how COVID-19 has affected radio production and listening habits. To help us do that, we're bringing back James Cridland. James was previously on Looking Forward to speak about podcasting. Well, guess what? He's also an expert on the radio industry. Along with being the editor of Pod News, a daily podcast newsletter, James Cridland is a radio futurologist, a writer, consultant, and public speaker on radio's future. James has worked in radio and audio since 1989 as an award-winning copywriter, radio presenter, and internet strategist. James launched the world's first streaming radio smartphone app in March 2005 for the original Virgin Radio in London, launching daily podcasts earlier that year. In 2007, he joined the BBC, working on the BBC iPlayer for Radio, achieving a dramatic increase in the service's audio quality. James was one of the organizers of Next Radio, the UK Radio Ideas Conference. He has worked with the world's largest radio conference, Radio Days Europe, since its inception. A founder of the Hybrid Radio Technology Association, Radio DNS, he is an associate member of the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences. Born in the UK, James lives in Brisbane, Australia, with his partner and daughter. Well, hi, James. Welcome to Looking Forward again. Again? Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome, and you'd have to be good to be asked back. So you know that you're good. And you are a Looking Forward alum. And we know that when you were first on Looking Forward, you spoke about the podcast industry, which you are an expert in. But I know that you got into the podcasting industry from radio. So maybe you could share with us first how it was that you first got involved with radio and what motivated you to get involved with that medium. You could have been involved with TV 
newspapers. If you could let us know about that, I think that would be really interesting, mm. James. Yeah, so I was, so this is a, a story that, uh, I mean, firstly goes back to my breakfast cereal. So I used to have uh, Frosties, Kellogg's Frosties, probably okay. very, very bad for you. But anyway, and I was six at the time, and they had a thing where you would collect tokens off the back of the cereal packets to send off for a free radio. And it was a radio in the shape of a Frosties packet with Tony the Tiger. Um, and on the other side, it had ricicles. Uh, I don't know if you have ricicles in the US, no. but anyway, they're rice pops, basically. So I saved up all of my tokens and sent off for my radio. And when I got this little radio, such a cute little thing, and I got <laughs> it, and it was 1977, and I listened for an entire day. It was a little AM radio, and I listened for an entire day. And then I was quite sad because I had used up an hour of my radio, and I didn't know how much more content it had in it. And I was worried that I would just listen to the same songs over and over again. Nobody had quite explained how radio worked. <laughs> and so I was hooked basically from that time on. So, I mean, obviously, I then took the radio to bits and broke it. But, uh, you know, <laughs> that's, but that's what happens when you're a boy of six. So I went to uh, boarding school in the UK and a friend of mine was getting told off by the headmaster. And he knew that he was going to get hauled in front of the headmaster and told off. And he thought, wouldn't it be funny if I could broadcast somehow his telling off so that everybody else could actually hear him in apoplectic rage? And so he, <laughs> so he built himself a little FM transmitter, which he stuck in a pocket. And we could all listen. We could all listen to him walking into the headmaster's office and being told off for something that he shouldn't have done. And I thought, this is amazing. Broadcast radio, this is amazing. And so from then on, it was basically, right, how do I get involved in this? So when I left school with examinations in uh, music, physics and politics, not the usual mix that you no. would normally get, no. but music, music for the music side of radio, politics for the news journalism side, physics for the electronic side, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be involved in radio somehow. I then uh, found myself a job in a radio station and started work. So yeah, really enjoyable. And when you first started, were you actually a disc jockey? Were you playing records? My first job was carrying the mobile phone for one of our news journalists, which ages me in two ways. Firstly, mobile phones were so big that you needed a strapping young lad to carry one. <laughs> but also, secondly, that's when radio stations had journalists. <laughs> so, so I think that that's sort of two, two different sides there. But uh, no, so my, then, then my first sort of paid job inside radio was playing the ads, which was uh, an exciting thing. I then did become a DJ for a couple of years and realised that it was a fun job, it was an enjoyable job, but it was also a job that wasn't very rewarding, actually. If you have to play, you know, Michael Jackson's Heal the World every other night and sound excited about it, then you suddenly realise that this isn't necessarily a job that, unless you are really gifted in it, that will have a massive ladder of success, really. So I decided that it was probably better that I was hidden away behind the scenes rather than in front of the mic. So I started doing interesting things around radio and technology and seeing what happens where radio and the internet collide. What a great background you have, even when I think about your education, combining those three different majors, it's so diverse, it's wonderful. Oh, yeah. If you could just address the evolution of radio as you see it, James. 
Yeah, well, gosh. How long do we have, Jeff? <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, I think radio is fascinating. So you may remember when MTV first went on the air. MTV's first song, I think it was in 1982, MTV's first song was Video Killed the Radio Star. And you may also have noted that MTV no longer plays songs and is just another TV channel these days. I think radio, some people talk about radio as being the cockroach of media, something which is impossible to kill. And I think, although deeply disrespectful, I think that there's probably some sense of truth in that. Radio has always been one of those mediums which has always succeeded, no matter what has been thrown at it. So when television came along in the uh, in the 50s in uh, Europe certainly, you saw lots of people saying well that's the end of radio, isn't it? And actually no, radio reinvented itself a little bit. Radio refocused instead of having, you know, quiz shows and documentaries and a wide variety of different stripped programming on a radio station you ended up with radio stations that were known for one thing and one thing really well. So, you know, you, you moved from, you know, radio which had the Dick Barton Radio Hour or, you know, uh, the Lone Ranger and all of that type of stuff to basically knowing what was going to come out of the speaker before you turned it on. And that was a very clever, clever plan because that essentially meant that radio kept itself relevant in a new world where we might turn a television on for entertainment, but radio was still there as a way to get information over, as a way to get um, to communicate and everything else. And radio, back in those days, nine out of 10 people listened to the radio every single week. These days, nine out of 10 people listen to the radio every single week. Radio is still incredibly popular in terms of reach, in terms of the amount of people who tune in. The amount of radio that we listen to has gone down, absolutely. But um, the fact that, you know, 9 out of 10 Americans and 9 out of 10 people in most countries listen to the radio every single week, I think just shows how successful radio is and how successful radio is continuing to be. So how along that path, if you go back to when TV was introduced and Mm. think about the 60s maybe and thereon, How did it survive and continue to survive? You mentioned it would focus on a particular kind of program or format. That was one big change. What other changes? So quite a lot of changes have been driven by just the availability of choice. So I'm I'm a Brit, as you can tell from my ridiculously aloof accent. Um, (laughs) So in the 1960s, there were really only three radio stations that uh, most British people could pick up, and they were all run by the BBC, by the government, and that's basically as far as we went. Whereas in the 1970s, all of a sudden, commercial radio appeared on the scene. We were very late to it in the UK. And that allowed uh, different formats to suddenly appear. And instead of having a classical music station and a a news station and kind of a young-ish music station, you ended up with all kinds of different formats out there, which was really good and opened radio up to a lot of new people. Then what we ended up seeing, of course, in the 1980s was FM becoming really big as uh, FM radio stations began to take over. And, um, you know, and this happened, of course, in, in the US as well under a slightly different timescale. But what you ended up seeing is radio stations suddenly realizing that they could do different things on FM than on AM. 
They could have different formats there. The launch of the classic rock format, of course, you know, seemed to work fantastically well in the US. And that was stuff that we'd, that we'd not had in the past. So all of a sudden, these additional choices have appeared. Now what we have in terms of new forms of broadcasting, whether that's broadcasting over the internet, whether that's something called DAB, which is a form of broadcasting radio in Europe, or HD radio, which is a slightly less good form of doing that in the US, we've seen, again, an explosion of additional choice there. So if you want a radio station that just plays one particular subgenre of music, now you'll find it. A couple of my favourite examples of this are in London, there's a radio station that broadcasts in the Polish language. And you might think, Polish? Why on earth is Polish being broadcast in London? Well, it's being broadcast in London because there's quite a big Polish community, uh, a lot of tradespeople who work in London, and actually it's really helpful for them to have a radio station of their own. And similarly, there's a radio station called Fix Radio, which again is in London, and that is a radio station just for people who are in the construction industry. So people who are building houses, people who are, you know, replacing roofs, doing windows, all of that kind of uh, stuff. And it's a radio station specifically built for them. So it includes a weather report, which isn't just 20 seconds over a music bed and away you go. It includes much more detailed weather information about doing your taxes and all of that kind of stuff and maybe most importantly it doesn't play the same songs round and round and round every 90 minutes as many large stations do because you're supposed to be listening to it all day when you're at work so a bunch of this additional choice has really only now been available because of the explosion of you know whether it's uh, fm in the 70s or 80s or whether it's now internet radio and dab broadcasting now and I think that has, more than anything, kept radio as relevant as it's, it's always been. That is fascinating. Thanks for sharing that, James. Somewhere around 25% of our listeners are not in the United States. Yeah. You may be interested to know that Australia actually comes in number two right now, and it's probably because of you. I think you are driving my Australian audience. Yeah, don't know about that, but anyway. <laughs> yes, but anyway, yeah. when we're talking about all these changes and the way radio used to be and the way radio has become, mm. you've mentioned Europe. You know, you grew up in Great Britain. We know about the United States. You've touched on that a little bit. Yeah. What about radio in other countries, James, over this period of time? Is it a relatively new phenomenon in other places around the world, or was it, too, existing and doing okay and evolving as it had to? I think that's a great question, and uh, one of the interesting things about radio is that it has evolved in very different speeds in different countries. Australia, actually, was one of the first countries in the world to have commercial radio. So commercial radio launched you know, pretty close to when it launched in the US. Uh, interestingly, there's a lot of talk in the podcasting world about exclusive content and subscription content at the moment. In terms of radio, the way that commercial radio started here in Australia is that you would go and buy a sealed set. So that's a set where the tuning knob doesn't work. And it was <laughs> set to a particular radio station. The idea was you would pay $200 for that particular radio and the $200 would mostly go back to the radio station and that would pay for the programming. That was the original plan of commercial radio launched here in Australia. 
within six months, people realized what a stupid idea that was. <laughs> and they stopped uh, doing that. Sealed sets are still available. Uh, they're still available in one country in the world, and that's North Korea. Wow. Uh, where radio sets that are sold there can only tune in to the official uh, stations. It's interesting uh, uh, coming to Australia and seeing a much older industry in terms of commercial radio and in terms of just, you know, the general market here. But then you have a look in other countries. And really, radio is as strong in pretty well every country in the world as it is in the US. 90% of people tuning in. There's a few differences in terms of some of the Asian countries where particularly looking at uh, South Korea, looking at Japan and places like that, where radio is still part of their lives, but not to as, as much of a degree. But pretty well everywhere else, radio is incredibly successful. There's one wonderful stat that I love. I'm not sure whether this says more about radio or the other thing, but <laughs> in Africa, okay. there are more radio sets owned in Africa than there are mattresses. <laughs> uh, which is a wonderful, a wonderful stat. I'm not quite sure of the point of it, but still it's a great thing. One of the things, for example, that I love about radio in Africa, particularly in some parts of Africa, is just how small and community-focused some of these stations are. There are still large commercial stations and large public-operated stations, but there are lots and lots of very small stations who are just aiming for their own particular village, their own particular community. And you can skip between one person doing some religious preaching followed by a very heavy metal music show followed by something <laughs> else. But what's so interesting about where radio is in different countries is that it's actually right for that particular community. There's a radio station in South Sudan which always had tremendous problems with the electricity supply and they worked out a method of running the entire radio station off solar. So they've got uh, great big batteries and everything else. They run the transmitter through it. They run the entire studio complex through it and everything else. And the whole thing is run off solar, which is just such a good way of, of actually uh, doing that kind of thing. So, yeah, so it's very interesting, you know, in many parts across the world. The one thing I think that does show how important radio is and how successful radio is, is when you have a look at radio in Germany. Germany, for quite some time, was prohibited, forbidden, from having national radio. All of their radio was done on a state-by-state, -state, a lander-by-lander -lander basis. And uh, they do have national radio now, but it's not that large. And uh, one of the reasons why is that radio was used by the Nazi party uh, as a very effective tool to further the views of that particular party. So I think you can see the power of radio, for good or for bad, in some of the stories of uh, radio that come out of Europe in particular. That is fascinating, whether it be the mattresses versus the radios or the solar-operated station or Germany, which makes sense to me. Mm. It's all very, very interesting. This may be a difficult one for you to put your arms around. It does, in some sense, relate to statistics, but we don't need a lot of numbers. You've already talked about nine out of ten. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about who the radio listeners of today are? In one sense, it's nine people out of ten, generally speaking. Mm. Does it tend to skew towards certain ages? I realize that might vary country by country. And the listening habits of radio listeners today, mm. where are we when we look at that sort of thing? 
Well, I think what is a little bit complicated about radio these days is actually the definition of the word radio. So I'm going to just rewind a bit and start there, because actually, if you look at radio as being AM and FM, which is a very North American definition of what radio is, that's fine, but that is an industry in contraction, most definitely. It's um, fewer people year by year listening to AM, FM radio, just because of the way that uh, people consume media these days. If you look at radio as being an audio-first experience, which is a shared experience and a human connection, that's my definition of what radio is. Audio first, shared experience, and a human connection. Broadcasting over the internet, for example. Some people in North America don't believe that that's the radio. It is the radio. Of course it's the radio. It just happens not to use AM, FM. There's a question around where the podcasting is, and that's a little bit more of a nuanced one. But I think um, if you look at radio as incorporating, at the very least, all of the other platforms out there to get radio to people through mobile phone apps, through smart speakers, you know, and so on and so forth, then what you can really very clearly see is you can see that there are really two audiences out there. The older audience is very comfortable with AMFM, listens to AMFM a lot. Uh, there's a lot of in-car listening in the US in particular, and that's where uh, the majority now of radio listening is it's people aged 45 plus. The amount of listening, the hours listened to is old. But you then have a look at what younger audiences are listening to, and they're listening to a lot of radio. It's just radio which is being delivered in a different way, and that's probably on demand. That may include podcasting and things like that. It may include bits and bobs you might find on the iHeartRadio app or the BBC Sounds app or so on and so forth. So people People are still consuming radio, except for younger audiences consuming radio in a slightly different way and certainly more on demand. I mean, I say all of that, you know, it is older people who are keeping radio going in most countries. But I was in a radio conference in Moscow around five, six years ago in Russia. And that was a fascinating and eye-opening experience, partially because the first speaker was a lawyer telling you what you could and couldn't say on the radio these days, <laughs> because the laws change so quickly in that country. But also, secondly, because their big problem is that they have too many young people listening to the radio and not enough old people. And the reason for that is old people don't trust the radio because radio 30 years ago in Russia or in the USSR was a very different beast to what it is now. So again, it's, um, it's that sort of difference of radio in different markets, which I always find absolutely fascinating. That is fascinating. Let's talk about COVID-19. What impact, yes, James, I, I'll Man. bet you have... <laughs> what impact do you think the COVID-19 has had on the radio industry, whether it be the formats, the mm. owners, listeners, advertisers? Yeah, so, I mean, on a very broad brush approach, there are two impacts that it's obviously had. One impact is that because people haven't been commuting, people haven't been listening to radio in their cars, mm. that used to be the majority of, certainly in North America, used to be the majority of radio listening time. And so that's, you know, clearly impacted the industry. And certainly people are getting up later. And so, therefore, the amount of listening to The Breakfast Show, which is normally the most listened to show on a particular station, has gone down. Um, that seems to be recovering now. 
But what we've also seen, of course, is that radio has, up until very recently, been very wedded to the fact that it's got fantastic studios and a beautiful facility in downtown. And then you go down to these excellent studios and you do your show and blah, blah, blah. And what COVID led to is a realisation that you do not need to be in a fantastic, beautiful facility in the middle of a shopping centre, blah, blah, blah. You do not need to do any of that to make great radio. And there have been experiments in the past with radio stations that don't have studios at all. And what we saw is we saw a large amount of radio companies suddenly realising we can keep our talent at home and our talent can do their shows from home, from their own kit, just like the kit that you and I are using right now. And actually, we don't need to put them into harm's way and get them to public transport to get into work and, and sit with you know other grubby human beings and <laughs> spread the disease around. Right. So I think there's been a, a big change in just the way that we produce radio as well. And I don't think that most radio listeners have noticed the fact that most of the radio that we've been listening to has actually been in somebody's front room or in somebody's bedroom. That's been a big change. I have to say, one of the most fascinating bits of data that I saw was here in Australia, where we had a very unique situation where Melbourne was in lockdown, complete lockdown. You weren't allowed to go anywhere because the virus was all over the place and and, and the authorities were keeping people in their homes partially to cut down on the hassles that the uh, hospitals were getting and everything else and to keep people safe. That was going on in Melbourne. In Brisbane, we had no lockdown at all. It was business as usual. Life continued as normal. There was absolutely no cases of COVID whatsoever. What that led to is to a fascinating survey, a fascinating radio survey, which they do every month or so here in Australia, where the survey was conducted in exactly the same way. The radio stations are much the same. They're the same format in each uh, capital city. So you're able to directly compare the effect of lockdown with a normal sample that weren't in lockdown uh, for exactly the same radio stations. So what we saw out of that, which I thought was fascinating, is that we saw all music radio stations going down. All of them went down in terms of time spent listening and all speech stations, all human being radio stations, radio stations with a voice at the other end, all of those, without exception, went up and went up by quite a lot. And I think that that does show that people were using radio for community, for being connected with the outside world. But also, you could argue, people were stuck at home. They had access to Wi-Fi. They had access to all of their technology. And frankly, if you've got access to free and abundant Wi-Fi, you're paying a a sum for, but it, it doesn't matter how much you use and you have access to all of your technology at home, laptops and smart speakers and everything else, then if you're going to put music on, why would you listen to, you know, a harebrained DJ in the middle of a basement somewhere playing, you know, yes. playing you Billie Eilish again? <laughs> why would you not use something like Spotify or YouTube music or that sort of thing? So I think we've seen two things coming out of the pandemic. Firstly, a big change in how we create and consume radio. But also, I think people have begun to understand and begun to really use the technology that they've had for a while in terms of on-demand music services. And I think that they are demanding a bit more from radio in terms of that human connection and that shared experience that I was talking about earlier. I think that is really interesting. Because as I'm listening to you, James, I'm thinking about myself 
clearly one of the reasons why I don't listen to music on the radio is exactly what you said. I'm listening to music on YouTube on demand. Yeah. You'd think I would have thought about that. That is really a big change. Yeah, I think it is a big change. And I think the other big change, when I was on the radio, if you wanted to hear the brand new song by the Backstreet Boys or something, then you would have to wait until I played it. If you wanted to know what was going on in the world of the Backstreet Boys, I don't know whether you ever got the Backstreet Boys. In oh, we did. I, we I, did. Can't, I can't remember where, we did. where they were from or anything. <laughs> but anyway, if you were interested in the boys and finding out where they were and what they were doing, you had to wait for me to say, as a DJ, you know, oh, they're in such and such at the moment and they're doing this particular concert. You would have to wait for me because I was the person that was clued up to all of this and I was the person that was your guide into this world of pop music and everything else. Now, if you want to hear the latest music from the equivalent of the Backstreet Boys for today, you would use YouTube, you would use Spotify. If you wanted to find out what they were doing, you could hear from themselves on Twitter and on TikTok and on all of these other places. So the whole point of music radio as was 20 years ago when I was on the air has basically been entirely replaced by the Twitters and the Facebooks of this world and by the YouTubes and Spotify's of this world. So actually what I found interesting moving to Australia five or six years ago is how much uh, in inverted commas personalities there are on the air even on music radio stations. How many people who talk a lot and share a lot about their life experiences and you know and, and and they have very large breakfast crews here of lots of different people because that's what people are tuning into the radio for they're tuning into the radio for that human connection and that shared experience they're not necessarily tuning in to hear the same song by Billie Eilish that they heard the radio station play yesterday at, at around about this sort of time so there's a big difference I think going on there I'm in a few of these Facebook groups for people that were radio DJs 30 years ago, and they're all bitter and twisted old men. And they're all old men, by the way. And you kind of get the feeling that they haven't realized that the world has changed and that what they were doing 30 years ago is not what would work now in terms of radio broadcasting. This concludes part one of our two-part series on radio industry trends, opportunities, and the future with our guest expert, James Cridland. Please join us next time for part two of this series. If you have any questions you'd like to ask James or me, please contact me at my website, www.jeff-ostroff.com. And if you like this episode, I'd really appreciate your liking it or giving it a positive review on the podcast hosting site where you listen to it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.